Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. I think something that's hard for a lot of uh, black and brown dancers is that we don't see or know our history within the classical ballet world and there is a history misty copeland she's made history becoming the first african-american female principal dancer at the american ballet theater one of six children she lived in a motel when she was just 13 years old she was discovered at the boys and girls club where she took her first ballet class on a basketball court She broke every barrier that stood in her way and credits her mother's inner strength for keeping her going. You know, I was the only black dancer, uh, black female dancer in American Ballet Theater for over a decade. And, uh, you know, that's when I, you know, I slowly started to realize that my purpose was bigger than just being a dancer. And I felt like what I I stood for and, and my voice and what I represented was more than me. Now she feels a responsibility to pave the way for those who dream of following in her footsteps. Also, her candid take on race relations in America today, and how Prince helped her become what she calls a whole artist. Here's my conversation with the legendary ballerina, Misty Copeland. Misty Copeland, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's been a joy for me to watch you and read about you through the years, but an honor to meet you. It's an honor to meet you as well. Thank you. (laughs) When you were asked about your childhood by an interviewer, you described yourself as a lost little girl. Mm -hmm. And that stunned me, thinking about the woman that I have read so much about and watched so much. You embody what is bold to me. So that really is what you were as a little girl, a lost little girl? I think it stuns it stuns my family and myself to think that I am the woman that I am now, um, having known me uh, as a child and, and just the, the path that I you know, grew up on. Uh, it didn't really nurture me in a way that I needed to be, I think, to be a human, a person. Um, you know, I was the fourth of six children um, in a single parent home with my mother raising us and, and just constantly moving from place to place and in, in many different schools and uh, sometimes not having a home and living in a motel. And I, I just was completely introverted. It was just my way of coping. Um, and I didn't really speak. I didn't share any of myself with anyone. You didn't really speak? No. <laughs> and that's why they called you the nickname, kind of in jest, but also it points to some of the sadness you were going through, the mouse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, before I found dance um, and, and, and found movement even before classical ballet, um, I had no outlet. Uh, and so, I mean, I literally just kept everything to myself. Hmm. And, you know, by the time I was 13 years old and I met my first ballet teacher, Cynthia Bradley, and I yeah. was living in her home, it was just shocking to her that I, I didn't have, you know, basic 
social skills that I should have had at that age. Um, I just feel like my growth was stunted because of the environment I grew up in and because, you know, I was kind of drowned out by my five siblings and it was yeah. it, it was possible for me to get by. And here you are today, the first African-American female principal dancer ever at the American Ballet Theater, the premier, you know, in the country. Yeah. People can't see your face on the podcast right now, but it sort of (laughs) seems like it still shocks you that life was not supposed to hand you this. No. But you grabbed it. You did. There's there's not a day that goes by that I feel like... uh, oh, this is normal, or, you know, this should have happened for me. Like, it's still, you know, I don't feel like I am that little girl that I was at 13, Mm. but I still feel like I'm I'm so grateful for the journey that I've been on um, and for the opportunities that I have now. Like, there are so many people in the world that will never get to live a life like I live now Mm -hmm. and never get to have the opportunities that I have. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's shocking. Even, you know, it's been, I think it's been like three years now since I've been a principal. And uh, and I still can't really believe it. <laughs> I remember vividly the 60 Minutes piece on you. And they said she may become yeah. the first African-American principal dancer. <laughs> and then shortly thereafter, you did. Yeah, that was, that was a w- really strange time. You know, I, I can't think of any dancer in the world that's experienced, uh, you know, the publicity and and exposure that I had, especially at such a critical time. You know, no one experiences people, you know, saying, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And it happened so publicly to you, all of that pressure. Yeah, it it, it adds to the pressure that's already there and and, uh, kind of opens you up for Mm. even more criticism. So that was probably one of the more stressful years in my career, Mm. just, you know, trying to go on stage and perform in these ballets that are extremely difficult and being the first black woman to do it and having, you know, all of this, uh, I don't know, anticipation and people, uh, you know, these ideas that they they had for me. And then, you know, it's like if I go out there and I fail, am I going to be promoted? So it was a very interesting time. And and I was very happy to have the interesting is a kind way to describe it. Misty. (laughs) It was very unusual for for someone to experience that so publicly in your memoir. Uh, life in motion. You say over and over again in the first chapter, and then you keep repeating it, this refrain through and through, this is for the little brown girls. Tell me about that. My journey, uh, you know, I was always very aware of the fact that I was mixed biracial, and my mother made it very clear that the world was going to view me and see me as a black woman. So that was something that I was I was very aware of, conscious of. Uh, but when I became a professional Uh, or when I entered the ballet world, it kind of all went out the window. It was the first Mm. time that it was like, I'm not this quiet little mouse. I'm not the little black girl in my school. I'm a ballerina. And that became my identity. And my race had nothing to do with it, Uh, which is very strange being that, you know, the the ballet world doesn't really celebrate or have women of color. Mm. Um, And then when I became a professional, you know, that was when it was really eye-opening. You know, I was the only black dancer, uh, black female dancer in American Ballet Theater for over a decade. And, uh, you know, that's when I, you know, I slowly started to realize that I, my purpose was bigger than just being a dancer. And I felt like what I, w- what I stood for and, and my voice and what I represented was more than me. It was an opportunity for these little brown girls and boys to be able to look at me and see themselves and see a future for themselves in a space where they're not really uh, celebrated or accepted. So I feel like 
my journey along the way, it's like, this is for them. This is for them. Everything I'm going through, it's to make it easier for them. So if your purpose is not to be the best dancer in the world, you've already, you've already achieved that status, right? Then, Misty, how do you think about your purpose today? I mean, is it to help heal the wounds that racism has caused in this country? Is it to help close that gap and that understanding? Um, is that part of it? It is. You know, I, I feel like I've had such a beautiful journey of meeting so many incredible people along the way that I feel like have shaped me and, and opened my eyes to things maybe I didn't experience firsthand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's not just the little girls that I meet that experience insane things. You know, at seven years old, being a black girl in their school and they're being told by their teachers, you know, uh, you don't belong here. Your skin is the wrong color. Your feet are too flat. Your hair is not, you know, we can't work with your hair and put it in the styles that it needs to be done, you know, for a classical ballet. Um, And then I meet this other generation of women that say, had I had someone like you, I would have pursued ballet. And it's like, how many amazing artists have we missed out on? Because they weren't given support and an opportunity. So I feel like I want to be the voice of so many that didn't have what I have. You meet little girls in ballet going through that now? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that that, that's something that's going to take a long time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it'll ever completely go away, but, you know, I think we're just now starting to kind of break through and, uh, you know, having this diversity initiative uh, project plie that's in conjunction with the Boys and Girls Clubs and and American Ballet Theater. Uh, It's it's trying to create this structure that doesn't really exist for others in the ballet world, you know, Mm -hmm. people that aren't white. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to create is a way to educate these teachers in schools and, and how to um, how to deal with people they're not familiar with or people that are different and mm-hmm. um, also educating the parents of these minority children and how to really raise a dancer. Like my mother had no idea and I feel like had she had some awareness and some education, uh, I wouldn't have gone through a lot of what I went what through. What you went through. Yeah. You also look to history to an amazing woman that I learned about because of because of you, Raven Wilkinson, mm-hmm. an African-American ballerina who was the only black dancer with her company, all-white dance company in the 1950s. Yeah. And she has changed your life. Oh, my gosh. Like, <sighs> um, she brings yeah. you to tears. I can't remember how old I was, but I was watching this documentary called The Ballet Russe. Yeah. Um, And this black woman came on the screen and she started speaking. And it was the first time that I felt like I recognized myself in another dancer. And it was so powerful and something I wasn't expecting um, or anticipating. And so that moment made me feel like my this opportunity is so much bigger than I ever thought. And the fact that I could be. I could envision this incredible future for myself just by seeing her. Like, I know what that means for other little girls that are looking at me or other young boys mm-hmm. that are looking at me. Like, the power of, of seeing themselves through someone else that's succeeding is, is more than I think we understand. Was that the first time, I mean, as part of why it is so emotional for you? Because that was the first time that you thought, that could be me. Yeah, I mean... I think something that's hard for a lot of uh, black and brown dancers is that we don't 
see or know our history within the classical ballet world, and there is a history. Yes. And so when you feel like, you know, there, you don't really have that connection to it, you feel kind of lost in it, and it's, and it's very surface. And people don't, I think, understand, certainly I didn't until I read more, what, for example, she went through mm-hmm. as a black dancer with a white company touring in the South in the 1950s and before that, that, you know, she was doing this at times that it was illegal mm-hmm. for black and white dancers to share the stage. Yeah. That in the Deep South, her life was at risk. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it just, it added to how much I... Um, just fell in love with her and respected her and and to this day like she's she's the most joyful and positive um supportive person Mm -hmm. i've ever met well so you had all of this admiration for her before you even met her and then you meet her turns out she lives here in new york city with you she lives a block from me that's what i heard A block really away. Insane. So what what was that phone call like? Did you bake bread, bring it over, <laughs> knock on her apartment door? Um, so I had just started working with my manager, Gilda yeah. Swire, and I was doing an interview, and I and I mentioned her name, and Gilda was like, I, she started Googling her right away. <laughs> She's like, who is this woman? How don't I know about her? Right. And... Um, Gilda, you know, looked her up and and she found her and she's like, oh my God, she lives in New York City, called her up and we ended up doing uh, like a discussion panel about two different generations of black ballerinas at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Um, And the first time I spoke with her was on a radio interview. Oh, really? Um, And then we met for the first time. I mean, it was just so extremely emotional. She has said about you when you're on stage, I think to you, May I be the wind at your back? Yes. She says that every phone call before I do a performance, or she leaves me a message, and I like try and save them as long as I can. Yeah, um, yeah. And, that, and that's how I feel. I feel like I have all of these people, you know, that are they're with me there. You know that it, that I'm I'm dancing for them. They're dancing with me, and so. You know, it's, it's, you know, when people ask me, like, oh, is this so much pressure, the weight of being the first, or, yeah. you know, just, you're so exposed. And I say, you know, when I get up there, like, it's it's so much bigger than me that it's hard for me mm-hmm. to think that small, you know, right. that I'm, like, I get so caught up in like, myself. Like, I can deal with this. I'm doing this for so many others. Yes. <laughs> it is interesting to me, though. It seems like the argument that, that you've made is that inside the world of ballet, things have not changed enough and you know the the world that Raven Wilkinson lived in and the world that you live in and dance in now is not different enough no I I can't think of any other um, art form or sport or career that has existed in this like calcified uh, bubble that the ballet world exists in yeah Um, it's really insane uh, the most change I've seen is probably in the past two or three years. Mm. Um, you know, by me having the platform that I have, and I think, you know, speaking so openly about race, you know, it's it's forcing the ballet world to address it. And I feel like now, you know, that I'm in this position, there's more focus on it. Mm-hmm. So they can't kind of hide and do what they've always done. Uh, you know, and there, there are so many companies now that have African-American dancers, you know, but, but it's, it's a really difficult thing because the ballet world is something where uh, if you want to get more diverse 
children uh, involved that will then yes. become professionals. Like you have to have a bigger group of them that right. are going in and getting the right training from a young age. And for a lot of minority dancers, we happen to stumble in, you know, like you whatever, did, like I did, at or, age 13, at 13 on or, a basketball court right, at the Boys, the Boys and, and Girls, Girls Club. Club. But that seems to be most black and brown dancers' journey that they don't really have the opportunity. And, you know, they happen to be extremely talented and they start late and they're given an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we have to reach these communities and, and bring them the proper training mm -hmm. so that we can then, uh, you know, invest in them and get them the training to then be able to go into big companies. What about race relations in this country overall, outside of the ballet world? Because you, you said recently, just because President Obama became the first black president, it doesn't mean that racism goes away. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's a given. It's, a very, it's very much a given. <laughs> yeah. But you were clearly sending a message with that statement. As you sit here as an adult and look at the world we're living in today, how do you see it and what needs to change? My experience, having been the only in my world for you know most of my career, I feel like, and when I mentor young dancers, especially young African-American dancers, especially young African-American men, I say to them, you know, that it's about how we approach it. You know, it's very easy to get emotional and to get angry. Yeah. And I feel like if you have the right approach and, and you, you educate people, that it's a very different conversation. Uh, you know, I feel like a lot of people just are ignorant to, you know, other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if we don't come together with that uh, kind of common uh, ground of, of, you know, not feeling like we're attacking each other, that it's, it's easier to hear and to learn. You shared a stage with former President Barack Obama in Interview for Time mm -hmm. a few years ago. You're both firsts in that respect. What was that like? <laughs> um, no pressure. You're yeah. just sitting down with the <laughs> then sitting president. Right. You know, I was I was very lucky that I had met him three or four times before that. I think had that been my first meeting, I don't think I could have been able to like form words. Stumbling over your words. <laughs> so luckily, you know, I, I had met him before and he's always just been, you know, such a down to earth um, person. And and so I felt very comfortable. But, you know, it it's. It was amazing to be able to exchange, uh, you know, experiences and, and have them be so similar, though they're at very different scales. Um, you know, even him sharing his two daughters' experiences or his his wife's mm -hmm. experience, and um, you know, one percent get to make it to a position yeah. like that, or, or as a principal ballerina in an elite company. So um, it's it's something that uh, is very rare that we shared, and um, it was just incredible to sit mm -hmm. down with him, not as the president, but just as a human being, as a black man mm -hmm. in America. More from my conversation with Misty Copeland after the break. Take me back to age 13. Age 13 was pivotal for you in so many ways. First of all, it's such a tough age for any young boy or girl to be yeah. going through. I, don't, I wouldn't go back there. <laughs> me either. But that was the year that dance ballet came into your life. Yeah. It's also a year that here you are living in a motel room mm -hmm. with your, you know, your mom and your one of six siblings. Yeah. What was 13 like for Misty <sighs> Copeland? 
I feel like my entire, uh, I don't know, young life was so stressful. I mean, to the point of, you know, I was just this ball of nerves all the time that I, I was I was having these severe migraines. They would happen maybe once a week, I mean, to the point of me vomiting or having to Because go of the anxiety. Because of the anxiety and the stress that I built up in myself. I mean, I know it was because of the experiences yeah. I had in the environment I grew up in. So at 13, you know, I, I would, as you read in my book, but I, you know, I would get to school an hour early out of fear of being late. Uh, just, you know, I felt like looking back now, I didn't have control over anything in my life. And those were the things I could control. Mm -hmm. um, and so at 13, you know, I was, I didn't have a lot of friends. I was really quiet. I mean, at lunch, sometimes I would just sit in the bathroom or I'd oh. wander around the school. And I think a lot of that was because I didn't want people to know what was happening in my life. And, and, um, I didn't want to share those things. I wanted people to think that, you know, I was this happy young girl that was living a nice life. But I mean, at home, you know, I we I had maybe three or four stepfathers and we wow. were living in a motel at the time and we were taking a bus, you know, a couple of hours to get to school every day. And you really didn't know where, you know, if there would be any dinner that night? Yeah. It was, it was, it was really bad. difficult. Um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, scraping together what we could find, coins and things like that. And, you know, just going to the 99 cent store and getting what, you know, as much as we could. Uh, so it was, it was really insane that at that age and in that yep. moment, I found ballet or ballet found me. <laughs> ballet found you. Yeah. And you used the railing outside the motel room <laughs> yes. to practice. Is that true? I, I did. I mean, talk yeah. about being resourceful. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I wasn't in, in ballet class, I, you know, I was home on the weekends uh, with my mother and my siblings at the motel. And during the week, I was living with my teacher and the owner of the ballet school, Cynthia Bradley. Right. Uh, and when I was home, it was like, it was the one thing that I had that was mine. I never had anything like that. So I couldn't stop. So I would go outside and I would use the railing and, and I would stretch and I would, you know, give myself a ballet class outside. About your mother, because mm -hmm. I know in terms of, you know, your father or a father figure, you did not know your biological father. Is that right? Right. Do you today? Yes. Um, I think I was 23 when I met him. How's that been? Um, it's weird. Uh, you know, um, my brother, my my oldest brother, Doug, who's named after my father, um, he decided around, I think, maybe 19 or 20 that he was going to find him. And he did. Uh, and none of my other siblings wanted to meet him. And when I turned 23, it was like, I'm, I'm ready. Like, I, I want to know who he is. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we talk once a week. And He's really, really in your life now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, it's weird to meet someone who's a stranger, but shares, you know, so much of you. Of course. Yeah. Your mother, you talk about her remarkable inner strength mm -hmm. and how much it impacted you and all of your siblings, despite your circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, and life is never easy between any teenage girl and their mother, <laughs> no. right? But the way that you talk about her um, really touched me. Tell me about your mom. You know, my siblings and I, we often to this day will get together and think like, how did we all end up okay? <laughs> you know, all how, six of you. All six. How did, you know, one of us not end up in prison or, you know, addicted to drugs or something like we were in an environment where that happened. The so odds easily. were stacked against you. Yes. And, and we all, 
you know, share this common, you know, answer that, you know, we think it was my mother's inner strength that, that we all have in us, this, this will to, uh, to survive, mm-hmm. um, to never give up. And that's what we saw, even though we saw a lot of things we shouldn't have seen, um, that was something that we constantly saw from her. And so I don't think any of us have ever, you know, been in a situation where we thought, you know, uh, I'm just going to give up and, and kind of give in to my circumstances. And, and it's, it's really remarkable. Um, I think my mother is the strongest woman I've ever met. What does she think now, Misty, when she watches you? What does <laughs> um, she say? You know, I, I think that I think she's always known deep down that I was a performer. Um, you know, as quiet as I was, but when I was at home and I'd put on Mariah Carey or Anita <laughs> Baker or Aretha Franklin and, and I would create, like, she always saw me as yeah. that person. I was telling you before the interview, my, my husband turns on Drake. Right. Well, and, and my two-year-old, <laughs> right? Dances. He's pretty, And my two-year-old daughter dances. So, we, you know, she's got a little of yeah. that in her, too. I, I don't know that she's the next Misty Copeland, but we're going to let her explore that side of her. Uh, uh, you have said that the first time you truly felt alive was when you started dancing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's such an insane feeling, you know, to think that the thought of the teacher calling on me in school to read was, I mean, I would be sweating and just praying, like, please don't call on me. I don't want that attention on me. And then, you know, I would just jump up on a stage in front of thousands of people and feel so at home. No nerves. No nerves at all. And, you know, there was just something that was so sacred. And I still feel that to this day about the stage. You know, the fact that uh, as a classical dancer, you know, you can't see the audience. It's just kind of black out there. And, uh, you know, as much feedback and criticism as we get in the studio, you know, to help us be better they can't say anything once you're out there. It's, you're responsible for everything that happens. Yep. And um, and it, I just felt very protected in, in this bubble, you know, from a young age when I would mm-hmm. step onto the stage that though I'm exposing myself to all those people, I can't see them. And, and I'm all I feel is joy mm-hmm. doing this thing. <laughs> so you brought up your first teacher, your yeah. first ballet instructor, Cynthia Bradley, who's been a huge part of your mm-hmm. life. It was a complicated road. She saw your talent and then eventually asked you to come live with her, to to leave the sort of chaotic home environment you were in, despite your deep love for your mother, and that's clear. But the circumstances around you, it felt like you could not thrive in. Yeah. So you left home. Um, Yeah, I mean, Cynthia and her her husband, Patrick, are incredible people. Um, You know, she saw for some reason she saw in me from the first day that Mm. I took that first ballet class with her this incredible potential and she had envisioned you know what my life could be like and uh, you know to this day I'm like I don't know how she envisioned all of these things but um, you know when she didn't even learn that I was living at a motel for months Mm. you know I was training with her and she had no idea until the day that I I said you know my mother can't uh, handle the back and forth and me being on a bus or my siblings coming to get me after ballet class in the evenings. And so she drove me home and and I never told her that we were pulling up to a motel. And that was the first time she saw how I was living. Mm -hmm. And she she left and she came back because she just thought, I can't let her future slip away. Like I have to fight for it. And so she invited me to live with her. Was she right? Would, yes, I, I wouldn't be here 
had I not continued dancing and lived with her. And I feel like, you know, as I was saying, I feel like I was uh, not evolved at all and, and uh, you know, not in a place where I should have been at 13 years old. And I feel like I grew so rapidly in mm. the three years that I lived with her, uh, just being forced to speak, forced to think about things mm-hmm. critically, as mm-hmm. well as, you know, I was dancing at the same time. So I just, I was so hungry and I was soaking up all of this information. It was just like, I grew overnight. (laughs) At one point you filed for emancipation from your parents, right? Mm -hmm. But that never ended up coming to fruition. And yet somehow you still have this wonderful (laughs) relationship with your mother. I mean, it's, it's been, you know, a whirlwind and, and a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, I always say like, I, I wouldn't be who I am had I not gone through all of that. And I, I wouldn't have been, I think, prepared to handle the ballet world and the criticism and all of that that comes with it. Mm -hmm. You know, had I not you know, ex, you know, been forced to be strong and tough. But it, what's so striking to me is it wasn't just those incredibly difficult circumstances that you came from, that you were surrounded by, the odds stacked against you. Even when you were living with Cynthia, even when the circumstances around you changed, internally, the ballet world said, you're not right. You don't fit, Misty. You don't have the right body. Your skin is too dark. You are not one of us. Mm-hmm. And you fought all of it every step. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> There's the famous Under Armour commercial, the first one with you in it, and it's it's the narrator over you dancing, reading letters um, similar to what you got, rejection letters about how you're just not the right fit for us, yeah. not the right body, not the right feet. How did you fight back all of that and make it to the top? I'm fortunate that because of Cindy and Patrick and, and the way they trained me and kind of kept me in this very protected bubble, Mm -hmm. um, that was not a distraction for me. And it is for so many black kids. Uh, That was not something that I, you know, that was mentioned to me or talked about. I was just existing as a young girl that was called a prodigy and I could, you know, just focus on my training. And it wasn't until I became a professional, I moved to New York City, Mm -hmm. that all of that just kind of came flooding in. And, you know, ballet was the one place I felt like I belonged. It was the one place I felt like I could be myself. And then all of a sudden, I'm literally told you don't belong. This isn't a world that you can thrive in. And it was just shocking. I mean, my world was flipped upside down. And then you land on the cover of Time Magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Way to tell them they're all wrong. (laughs) You're you're on the Time 100 list of the most influential people. How did you fight back? Um, Again, you know, I, I feel like I've always had a quiet strength. And I haven't been someone that kind of uh, is irrational or, or reacts immediately to things that happen to me. And right. I think uh, that's been a great quality in the position that I'm in. We see it on um, Twitter, how you take on Twitter trolls <laughs> yeah. with kindness. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I mean, I feel like you can't get anywhere when people are just kind of coming at each other, not understanding or hearing each other. Uh, you know, but I, I have to credit the support that I've had around me. Um, you know, I think they're the people that have that have been there, that have encouraged me, that have pushed me, mm-hmm. that have given me advice, and and um, you know, shown me that though you're the first and you're mm-hmm. alone, there are so many others that have been the first, even though it's not in the ballet world. There is a, a young woman who wrote you a letter when she was in tenth grade. Yes, Makeda. Rani. Yes. Now you've become a mentor to her. Yes. Tell me about. Do you remember <laughs> reading that letter for the yeah. first time? Um, I, I've 
had such incredible conversations and met so many amazing people and I've been getting letters since I was 13 years old um, and I mentor a lot of young dancers mm -hmm. but yes I, I met Mockett I was actually with another young girl that I was mentoring at the time and I was taking her to audition for American Ballet Theater's summer intensive in New York City uh, and and I met this other little girl that uh, handed me a note and it was Makita and I think she was like 13 or 14 at the time and you know we just stayed in touch we started emailing I'd go over to her house and have dinner with her family and um, and it's it's you know it's so important I think for people to see people like me especially as a black woman that's uh, you know setting a positive ex example mm -hmm. to see that I'm real to see that it's you know I'm not this celebrity you know that's they only see on tv but right. that they're me and and i feel like it's mm -hmm. so important to have those authentic relationships with with people and you write in ballerina body your other book about finally realizing that your body was perfect for you yeah I mean, that's a whole other thing, you know, well, not completely other, but, you know, when it comes to being African-American and being in the ballet world mm -hmm. and, you know, that, that rejection letter, the young girl mm -hmm. from the Under Armour commercial, mm -hmm. uh, you know, had um, given to her, you know, I, and I say this as well, like to the young dancers that I mentor, it's important for me to kind of decipher the, the words that are being uh, said and told to young black dancers, you know, when they're told you don't have the right body, uh, you're this and you're that, you know, it's, it's an acceptable way to say you don't belong in the ballet world without saying you have the wrong skin color. Um, you, you, you translate that as you have the wrong skin color for this profession. Yes. I mean, I know that because I have a body that a lot of white dancers have. And there are white ballerinas that are principal dancers that have larger chests than me and bigger muscles and broader shoulders. And they are not told they don't belong. And so I think it's a way that's accepted in the ballet world because it's about your aesthetic mm -hmm. and you have to look a certain way. So it's been easy for them to get away with saying you just don't have the right uh, skin color. So I think that when I, you know, my journey of, of you know, finding my healthiest self um, has also been accepting who I am, accepting mm -hmm. this body, that it's never going to be the 13-year-old girl's body again. I'm never going to be that misty. Um, and I'm never going to look like the person next to me that I dance with. So it's just about owning and loving my body and then, you know, making it as healthy as it can be for me. Billions of us would love to have your body <laughs> and millions of people envy it. So I'm glad that you have found that it is perfect for you as well. You mentioned Under Armour and that ad that I think, I think I read that in the first week that that ad aired a few years ago, 4 million people watched it on YouTube in the first week. <laughs> as you've grown in fame and celebrity, brands come at you all the time, right? Yeah. How, how do you decide whether or not to associate yourself with a brand? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I don't have a lot of free time. <laughs> <laughs> sure, um, you have to be selective. But, I mean, you signed on and there was some, I mean, was Under Armour was your first big deal, right? Yes. But, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm so grateful to have the manager that I have that, you know, truly is looking out for me and my best interest. Uh, and something that we've always agreed on is that, you know, with the time that I do have outside of my career, yeah, I'm not going to commit to something that I, we, you know, we don't have the same views. I don't completely stand behind. That's not authentic, you know, for me. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think, what makes it easier to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to 
partner with people like Under Armour that, uh, you know, celebrate the underdog and, and, you know, show people that, you, you know, it's showing the journey. It's not just showing like, oh, Stephen Curry is who he is now. It's right. like, no, he wasn't always that person. He was the little scrawny guy that no one wanted on the team. You know, like everyone. <laughs> and Misty Copeland was the was told no, 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 no. Right. And, you know, so I feel like, you know, whether it's um, Estee Lauder and, and Modern Muse or, you know, when I was with Seiko or, uh, you know, Dannon, like all of these things are, you know, things that um, are true to me. And so it makes it easier to choose. <laughs> well, Kevin Plank, founded Under Armour, was certainly the underdog in that. I mean, yeah. I remember him telling a story about not having enough money to pay the tolls right. when he was trying to, to start the company. Um, you've just launched a signature collection with Under Armour, and you talk about what you hope people feel. The reason you did it is to feel fierce. Mm-hmm. And I keep coming back to this word athlete in my head, yeah. athlete, 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 not just ballerina, mm-hmm. although you have to be an amazing athlete to be a ballerina. Right. But t- talk to me about your hope that that it will make other people feel fierce. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's first of all, it's incredible to be given an opportunity to uh, kind of collaborate with Under Armour. Um, you know, to not just be seen as an athlete that, you know, that a lot of, you know, pe- a lot of athletes have mm-hmm. opportunities to be connected to amazing brands. But I feel like Under Armour really invests in who we are as people and, and uh, ge- they give us opportunities to to blossom and, and, you know, to take on things that maybe we thought we couldn't do. So, uh, you know, it's been important for me having the platform of Under Armour to share that Dancers make it look effortless. Yes, people, you do. People think it's easy because of that. And it's even harder work to make it look easy. Um, and so, you know, I feel like when I was approaching the, the line in the collection, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being a New Yorker now, I've been here for almost 20 years, um, I feel like that plays into so much of my style. And I wanted it to be something that people could could move in, that it really, uh, you know, as a dancer, like we're constantly thinking about our line and what makes our legs look long and, and right. proportion. And so I felt like that was really important for me, as well as something that's, uh, you know, really fashion forward that they could leave the leave the gym in mm-hmm. and not look like they're coming from yoga class. <laughs> Under Armour has called you and some of the, the press about this, the epitome of a powerful woman. And it made me want to ask you, I mean, how, how does Missy Copeland define power? What is being a powerful woman to you today? I think that it's... Um, It's having like true, like inner confidence, Um, you know, being vulnerable, like not not allowing yourself to kind of be this hard shell of a person like, oh, I'm so strong. But, you know, being open uh, to to growing, to, you know, constantly allowing yourself to uh, become better and. I think just accepting and loving who you are, uh, like to me, that that is so powerful when you're when you have that strength and beauty on the inside and the outside. One of the reasons you've talked about, you brought up Estee Lauder, another huge sort of legendary makeup brand. But one of the reasons you signed on with them is because you felt like people like you, you said, are vastly underrepresented in the space. Yes. So in many ways. Yes, it comes with a paycheck, probably a big paycheck, but this was about little girls seeing your face on these ads and feeling like that could be me. 
Yeah, I mean, again, you know, representation is is so powerful, and that that visual, you know, for for them to see a, a black woman, um, you know, in a magazine or you know, with a with a beauty brand, like, you know, so many black girls grow up thinking that they're not beautiful, like they don't look like you know the women that are on ma- the covers of magazines, and and um, and so I think it's important for people to see. First of all, you know that I'm not an actress or a model, and um, I'm I'm a person. I'm an artist. I'm a black woman. I'm all of these things, and that that can be beauty as well. We have to wrap up, but I have a, f- a few more before I go about the future. Mm-hmm. So when I think of you, I think of athlete and ballerina. I also wonder if you would describe yourself increasingly as an activist. I don't think I would ever use those words or that word, but I think as a as a black artist and as someone who has the platforms that I have, mm-hmm. um, I do think it is my responsibility, especially as a black woman, um, to to have a, a voice and mm-hmm. to take a stance when when you know there are things that I I don't agree with and. You know, and when it's something that I know about, when it's something that I feel um, that makes sense for me to have a voice and speak about, you know, I, I don't want to just lend my voice just no. to, to do it. But have you ever thought about politics? No. No, no run is in Misty <laughs> no, Copeland's no, future? No, 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 no. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think one of the most amazing things for me, uh, you know, about the past year. Yeah. Um, and I feel like a lot of a lot of people in my circle or that I meet is that we want to be in the know more than ever. And um, I mean, whenever I have a five minute break, CNN is in my ear. We, we appreciate <laughs> that. Like, I, you know, I feel so knowledge is happy. power it and is. facts matter. It is. Exactly. They matter a lot. Yes. Um, because I'm from Minnesota and a huge fan of the late great Prince. I didn't know until recently that, well, first of all, if people haven't seen it, you danced on top of a grand piano that was crazy. in his 2010 <laughs> tour. But you've said he was your mentor and empowered you to be yourself. Yeah. What was the impact of Prince on your life? Um, Prince came into my life. Uh, I think I had been a soloist for, I don't know, a couple of years at the time. And I kind of was just floating around. Like, I didn't really, I didn't really know what it was I wanted Mm. or feel like I really knew who I was as a dancer. Um, You know, I I felt like I was kind of like, oh, I got lucky and I got promoted. Like, (laughs) what am I doing here? You know, what's going to happen in the future? And so Prince came into my life and uh, I I filmed a music video with him first. And then we toured through France together. um, And it was the first time that someone pushed me artistically to uh, to be me Mm. As as a ballerina. There are so many rules and there's so much structure. Yeah. Um, you know, that it, it doesn't really celebrate a lot of artistic freedom, at least, you know, as a principal dancer, maybe. But when you're not a principal dancer, it doesn't. So it was kind of shocking and weird to have that artistic freedom that he was giving me to go on stage and literally improv to his music. Mm. Um, and, I, and, and the conversations that we would have and just over the years of working together. And by the time we, you know, performed uh, on the Welcome to yeah. America tour uh, here at Madison Square Garden and at the Forum in Los Angeles, I felt like I had started to become like a whole artist. And he helped make you a whole artist. Yeah. That's quite a compliment. I, yeah. I mean, he did, he rarely, if ever, did interviews. I don't think I've ever seen an interview <laughs> with him. What 
do you, what did he leave the world with that you think people don't talk about enough because you had the privilege of knowing him? Well, it's, it, uh, you know, a lot of it's kind of come out since he passed. And I think that it's, it's uh, how nurturing he was mm. and, um, and how giving he was and, and how much he loved children. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's, he's, never would use his name, but he he gave a lot of money to a lot of organizations that mean a lot to me that mm -hmm. are, you know, celebrating ballet and uh, diversity in ballet. And I think that's something that people were, re weren't really aware of. So as we wrap, the last question is, in the end, what will have told you, Misty? And in the end, I don't mean of your life, I mean of this <laughs> yes. career or the net beginning of the next chapter. What will have told you, I succeeded? I already feel that. Good. I feel like the impact that I see on communities like I grew up in, um, the, the diversity I see in the audience at the ballet, um, that's what I'm here for. I think that's my purpose, to bring people in, to make them feel that they belong, um, to, to give uh, a future to young minority dancers that never saw this as a possibility for them. To me, that, that is, is success and it's happening. And if I had to stop tomorrow, I would be so fulfilled and happy with my life and my career. That's a pretty wonderful place to be at. Yeah. Missy Copeland, thank you for this and for thank what you've you done so for much. so many. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Carlo CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.